Good morning, brothers and sisters. Our cameraman today happens also to be the elder who's going to be bringing a prayer, so I'm stalling while he gets up here. But I actually have a word for you before we get started. I want to encourage you to go to our website if you have not. If you are a member, regular attendee of United Baptist Church, please go to our website and go to the news section. There's a survey there, eight questions. We'd love for you to take that survey. The results are going to help us in our planning for reopening. We are planning for reopening right now. We do not have a date set, but we are making preparations. And so if you would help us out by going there, we would greatly appreciate it. I want to welcome you to worship this morning and welcome Elder Tim Bland to lead us in prayer. Uh, good morning. Uh, I look so forward to seeing this room filled again with all your faces, and I I miss, miss you all, and I just can't wait to see everybody back again. So please, uh, like Scott said, do visit our website and um, take that survey. It would help us a little bit. So if you would please join me in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, during these times of unknown, we confess we at times place our trust in otherworldly things instead of trusting in you. We come to you with humble hearts. We are guilty of breaking your laws and trying to manage our lives without you. We confess we are guilty of so many sins, guilty of pride, unbelief, self-centeredness, and idolatry, just to mention a couple. I pray, Father, that you would place on our hearts the full effects of our sin, that we would understand the burdens of our sin. I confess we have had other gods before you, that we have seeked pleasures in this world rather than you. We have praised our glory rather than your glory. We confess we speak poorly of our neighbors and are quickly to judge others. We have questioned authority and often try to see what we can get away with. We confess that we've coveted others and searched for worldly acceptance. We confess, we complain, we are not content, we are ungrateful. We find reason to, reasons to complain, even though your love is endless and your provisions are more than we deserve. Father, we confess we have lied or told half-truths to make ourselves look better. Even in this prayer, we confess or look for ways to hide or justify our guilt. We confess, Father, that we need you and seek you in all we do. You have said through your word that if we confess our sin, you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We realize without confession, we stay in our patterns of sin. Our confessions are a submission to you and are an act of love. People who conceal their sin will not prosper, but if we confess and turn from them, we will receive mercy. Father, please bear with us in our sinful ways. Each guide and mold us to be more like your son. We love you, Father. Thank you, Tim. Well, C.S. Lewis said, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Those words express the struggle that we sometimes have in faith, moving from theory to practice, moving from principle to application. Yet in the parables that we have studied over the last couple of weeks on the topic of forgiveness, we know that Jesus did not teach 
only so that we would understand, but also so we might follow him. He wants us to follow his teaching. That's what a disciple is, is a follower. According to Jesus, it's the person who hears his words and does them that is building a life on a solid foundation. So in that spirit, how do we do forgiveness? How do we practice forgiveness? This morning I want to address one of the key components in practicing forgiveness, and that is the importance of a proper confession. If you plan to join us in the fall for our counseling cohort, which is our training for uh, biblical counselors, those who want to become involved in our growing biblical counseling ministry, those who'd like to be active in it. If you participate in that cohort this fall, and if you're interested, I'd invite you to consider that. Then you're going to hear some of this material that I'm going to bring to you today. You're going to hear it in um, some of the lectures given to the Institute of Biblical Counseling and Discipleship. If you've been part of our church for any length of time and you have taken the uh, biblical peacemaking class, then you have already heard this material. If you have read Ken Sandy's book on biblical peacemaking, then you have already read some of this material. There are really only so many acronyms, so many different ways to say the same thing, and I'm not even attempting to be original here this morning. I am uh, indebted to both the Peacemaker material and the IBCD material for most of today's outline, uh, which is the seven A's of confession. Let's pray. Father, again, we submit ourselves to your will and to your way. We ask that you help us by your spirit this morning as we seek to move beyond a knowledge of things that ought to be a certain way and we seek to actually implement these things in our lives. It's so easy for us, Lord, to have a knowledge, uh, even a zeal for that knowledge, but to fall short when it comes to application to doing. We do not want to be simply hearers of your word, Lord, who delude themselves but we want to be doers. For we know that faith without works is dead, and we've no interest whatsoever in a dead faith. So guide us and lead us this morning. Help us to search our hearts. Help us to know ourselves. Help us to apply what you would say to us this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What are the steps for me to take when I have sinned against someone? Step one is this. Address everyone involved. The importance of this step is that it makes us realize exactly who is harmed by our sin. If you've read Psalm 51 in the Bible, you know that David uh, helps us understand all sin is always against God. So a good place to start in taking inventory of who we have harmed and who to address it's God. We can always begin with God because our sin is an offense to him. But beyond God, who has my sin hurt? Who has my sin impacted? A spouse who blows up a family with infidelity has not only violated his or her vows, but has sent a shockwave in and through the kids. Similarly, a husband or a wife with an addiction 
surely doesn't feed that addiction in the bubble when a substance or sinful habit becomes entrenched people orient their lives around it which means that the ones who should matter most are being ignored and they are being shortchanged they're often being lied to sometimes they're even being abused you see sin is never really a private matter even if we want to consider it as such and so confessing it properly constitutes acknowledging who our sin has hurt if the sin is against an individual then a one-on-one meeting with that individual is in order face-to-face by the way not face-to-face book or anything like that not email not text face-to-face if the sin is toward a group, then the group should be addressed. If a sin is committed publicly, then the sin should be confessed publicly. Step one in a proper confession is that we address everyone involved. Step two, avoid if, but, or maybe. This is straight out of the peacemaker material. Some of you have flashbacks right now. The peacemaker material teaches us pretty clearly how not to confess. We know how not to confess, right? Nothing deflates a good confession like the word but. That is the word that uh, tends to negate everything that came before it. I'm sorry I offended you, but. Now go ahead and fill in the blank there. That would be the justification for the behavior. In the same way, inserting the word if in a confession can derail it. Confession is the admission of wrongdoing, an admission of guilt. Something is wrong or it's not. I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry if I hurt you leaves a lot of questions about one's sense of culpability, even about what has really happened. Don't say I'm sorry if I hurt you as as if your sin is a possibility you might have done something or maybe even the fact that someone is hurt by what you've done is collateral damage if there's any doubt as to whether or not your sin has hurt someone ask some clarifying questions and get the matter settled it's no harm in saying did I hurt you with my sin And if the answer is yes, then you move on from there. But don't say if, don't say but, don't say maybe. Maybe has that same effect. We say things like, well, maybe I could have handled that better. Well, maybe you could have, but that also leaves open the possibility that you handled it well, you handled it greatly. Maybe I could have handled that better. If you think you could have handled that better, then say you you should have handled that better and say how you could have done it. All these words that we weave into our confessions sort of lessen the blow maybe to our own psyche, but they do nothing for the person that we are confessing to. The best thing to do when we know that we have sinned against someone is to step up to that table and eat that big slice of humble pie, every bit of it, and tell the truth about what we have done. We must avoid any kind of language that minimizes our sin, that justifies our sin, or that casts doubt 
on our sin. The third step uh, in the seven A's of confession is to admit your offense specifically. In all my experience in counseling, this seems to be an area where a lot of our confessing breaks down. If we miss this step, or if we execute this step poorly, it seems like our sins are never quite relegated to the past. And some of you know what that is like. You're just carrying around this sense of guilt or sense of having been wrong because the sin was never properly dealt with. If we, if we miss this step or we don't do it well, then our sins become like the annoying black flies that we are dealing with these days, always buzzing around us, never leaving us alone, and unfortunately for a time at least increasing in number. To be forgiven of a specific sin, we must be specific about it in our confession. Most of us who have been sinned against, and if you've been around for any length of time, then this includes you, know how unsatisfying it is when the perpetrator mutters something like, I'm sorry, and expects that to be the end of the issue. They might even say, look, I said I was sorry. What else do you want from me? Or, hey, I'm sorry. Can't we just move past this? Well, the important question is, sorry for what? Sorry you got caught? Sorry, I'm upset. Sorry for what? When it comes to our trespasses against others, the vague and the meaningless confessions that we're used to that come out of Hollywood and the Beltway do not rise to the biblical standard. Name the sin. Name the sin with biblical terms if you can. Hold your nose and call it what God calls it. I know it's not pretty, it's not flattering, it's not how you want to be, it's not how you want to be known, it's probably something that you regret having done, but isn't that what sin is? Sin is literally missing the mark, and occasionally you and I are going to miss the mark. So don't say to somebody, I may have misled you. Say, I lied. Don't say... I cheated. Say, I committed adultery. Don't say, I fudged a little on my time card. Say, I stole. There's an element of humility in this specificity, isn't there, when we call it what God calls it. But that helps the one who's being confessed to to see that you know what you have done. Hopefully that awareness and the sting of having to confess it will discourage you from doing it again. So step three is admit your offense specifically. Step four is to acknowledge the hurt. This is another area in the pursuit of forgiveness that we might be inclined to want to hurry through because sin causes pain and and of course that's one reason that God tells us not to do it, is because it causes pain. And if we have any conscience at all, it's bad enough to have messed up, but it can be almost excruciating to take inventory of just how and how much our offense has hurt the people that we truly love. 
But this is always the truth of sin, beloved. It's costly to the one who is sinned against. The Bible uses the imagery of debt. When we sin against God, when we sin against another, we are depriving that person of what she or he has a right to expect from us. We are neglecting our duty. We are neglecting our obligation to them. We're really shortchanging them. And therefore, we owe them. They didn't receive from us what they had every right to expect to receive. That's what sin is. So imagine, if you have to use your imagination here, imagine the double whammy of hurting someone with your sin being indebted to them, and then ignoring how much it hurt them, ignoring or minimizing the hurt. I know, I know, because I know from experience how we want to wriggle ourselves off that uncomfortable hook of our own transgressions. We don't want to stay there very long. We don't want to face them. We don't want to deal with them. We can be tempted to overlook them or to turn our heads and pretend that that we haven't caused pain but we have. And so there's no use at all in compounding one sin with another. You know you and I are called to bear one another's burdens. I think that includes even if we're the ones who have caused them. So a proper confession acknowledges the hurt, admits the affliction a sin has caused. Fifthly, and these aren't in necessarily a particular order, so don't feel like I'm giving you a formula, just some good ideas. Fifthly, is ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness. Say, will you please forgive me? See, I'm sorry is not a wrong thing to say. That's a testimony of the feelings that I have because of the sin that I have committed. But it does nothing to remove the debt of sin that I owe. We must ask the person that we have shortchanged if they will forgive us our debt. This is a transaction. By my bad behavior, I owe you. Will you forgive what I owe? Asking is the job of the one who has done wrong. As Christians, now we know the answer to that question, right? We know what should come right after a question like that. Will you forgive me? We expect to hear, of course, I forgive you. And we'd like to hear that quickly. And in the ideal world, that's how it works. That's how it comes. But we don't live in an ideal world. Sometimes the hurt that we have perpetrated is very deep. Sometimes the transgression is very serious. All sin is serious, right? All sin is egregious. But the consequences of some sins are greater than the consequences of others. So a word of caution here. The one seeking forgiveness must be patient. You can't be impatient. Sometimes we act as if the words, I'm sorry, are the magic eraser. Maybe that worked when we were three or four years old and our parents were traipsing us in front of somebody that we'd done something wrong to. And we say, I'm sorry, and we don't even know what it means. And they say, it's okay. That's not the lesson that the Bible wants to teach us, right? The right thing to do after we have offended somebody, after we have sinned against them, is to ask for their forgiveness. We are asking. 
We are not demanding. The one seeking forgiveness must be patient. And at the same time, the one who is asked for forgiveness, if that person is a believer, and from a scriptural perspective, as we saw early on in the parable of the unforgiving debtor, that person must forgive. That person must work as quickly as possible to get to the place where she or he can offer, genuinely offer, forgiveness. That's how to handle conflict biblically, to acknowledge the debt, to ask for it to be forgiven, and then to have forgiveness granted. That's how to handle conflict biblically. Pastor and author Jim Neuheiser observes, however, that most Christians do not handle conflict biblically. He likens offenses, and we've all been offended. We've, we have offended others, and we have been offended. He likens offenses to weeds. Well, it's planting season, and some of you I know are putting in a garden right now. And if you are, then you know that very soon you're going to be uh, watching two things grow. You're going to be watching what you planted grow, and then you're going to be watching the weeds around it grow. What do you do with those weeds? Do you nurse them? Do you um, water them? Do you make more room in your garden for the weeds? No. If you can, you rip them out by the root, and you throw them aside, and you hope that they bake and die in the hot sun. They serve no purpose. They are simply a threat to the good that you are trying to cultivate in your garden. Well, we understand that in gardening. Not sure why we don't get it so clearly in life. You see, the offenses against us, the grudges, the hurts, the, the hurts that we harbor, those are weeds. And Neuheiser points out that a lot of people spend a lot of time just, rather than dealing with them at the root, pulling them out, mowing the weeds. We don't want them to get out of hand. We don't want them to overtake. We just keep them at a manageable level. But nonetheless, we allow them to remain. Might that be true for you this morning? Might it be true that you are nursing a grudge? That you do have resentment over something that has happened maybe even long ago? Are you struggling today with sins that are long past, but you're just not willing or haven't been to this point to pull them out by the root? To either go and ask for forgiveness to get this thing cleared up or to grant forgiveness that has been asked of you. The Bible says that when the sun goes down on your anger, you're given the devil a foothold. The Bible teaches that if a seed of bitterness is allowed to take root in our heart or lodge in our heart, it actually grows into a bitter root that defiles many. So be careful. It's, it's fine, it's okay if one wishes to take some time when asked for forgiveness. Uh, it's much better than saying yes and not meaning it. 
much better than, than saying yes and not committing to it, to it. But I would encourage you this morning, Christian, be careful that you don't linger longer than necessary to grant forgiveness because the longer you wait while not granting forgiveness, the odds are good that you're going to begin to build a file of reasons not to forgive. And that file will become greater than your understanding of why, in fact, you should. So be careful. Step number six, for the one who has committed the sin, for the one who is confessing, is to accept the consequences. The reality is that sin changes things. Sin changes the composition of relationships. Sin changes the dynamic of relationships. Forgiveness doesn't just put things back the way they were. And that's often what we want, isn't it? We make a mistake or somebody makes a mistake against us and and we just want to clear it up real quick and we want to get, let's just get it right back to where it was before. But that's not what forgiveness does. You have to accept the consequences of your bad behavior. You can be forgiven and still have to face the consequences of your bad behavior. If you have broken trust, it may take a while for trust to be restored. If you have spoken out of turn, it may take a while before somebody is willing to entrust you again with sensitive information. If you have disqualified yourself from a particular role or a position, you may have to resign that role, or you may have to be humbled and be removed from that role. You may never get back to that place again. Those are the consequences of sin. If you have used technology to sin, then you might lose access to that technology. If you have been deceitful in your communications, you may lose your expectation of privacy in these areas, at least with the person that you have deceived. Because sin has consequences. Some of you are parenting teenagers right now, and you say, this is exactly the conversation that we just had my child broke the rule and I laid down the law and a day later they said, can I have this back? Or why don't you trust me? Or how long is this going to take? But it isn't just for teenagers, is it? For all of us. Sin has consequences. And the process of restoration, it involves humbly accepting the consequences of our sin and working toward a better future, prayerfully a, a, a more joyous future, a better relationship with the person that we have sinned against. Please don't say something like, why can't you just let the past be past? That's, that, that sounds like we're just trying to get out of it easy. Say, how can we put the past behind us and build a better future? Be patient. Last step, step seven. Alter your behavior. Repentance is a biblical word for turning around, for turning and going in the opposite direction. When we confess, we are repenting of a particular sin. Our changed behavior then is evidence of the genuineness of our repentance. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul is encouraging new believers, to walk in the light, to walk as children of God. And he describes the process of getting there as putting off the old, the old man, the way that you used to be, and being renewed 
in the spirit of your mind, changing your thinking, thinking differently about life, letting God's word permeate you and give you a different perspective and view, and then putting on the new. So put off the old and be transformed in the renewing of your mind by the power of the spirit and put on the new. So in the fourth chapter, he, he gives some very practical instructions for what this could look like, what it should look like. He says, don't lie. If you're used to lying, if you're used to lie when in the old person, and you're a new person now, don't lie. Instead, speak the truth. He says, let him who steals, steal no longer. Stop stealing. He said, rather, let him work with his hands. Repentance is forsaking sinful behavior to do what God requires. And confession is empty if it's not accompanied by change. And I'm not talking about being perfect after you confess. Sometimes it takes a while to, to dig a hole and it takes a while to get out, but the desire to change and do what is right should be evident in the one who is seeking to be forgiven. Think if you have sinned against someone, how can I show that person that my remorse is authentic, that it's real? How can I convince that person that I truly want to be a changed person? I want to do things differently than I've ever done them before. I want to do it God's way. One final caution this morning before we wrap up. The change that we need to turn from sinning and to go uh, in, and to do God's will is not going to happen by human effort alone. We, we absolutely can and should try to do what is right. But if we try to do it on our own, I can tell you this right now, if you try to, to make all the changes in your own strength, you're going to fail. The Bible is, tells us that the spirit is willing. We have good intentions. But the flesh is weak. We have to do our part. But more importantly, we have to rely on God to do his. And God has done his part, right? God has done his part in Christ, who overcame sin and death so that we can too. And God has given us, his children, the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And the, and the scripture teaches that if we will walk by the Spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. So again, our focus in changing has to be on Jesus. It has to be on the Lord. It has to be about surrendering ourselves to Him, to doing it His way. It's all right that we admit our weaknesses. It's okay that we admit our needs. And it's okay to confess our own inadequacy as to being up to the task, to change, uh, to, change to be the person that He wants us to be. Those things are fine, right? We have to count on Him to help us change from the inside out. Jesus could not have been more plain than he was in John chapter 15, where we are taught to abide in him. And he tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that is the truth. If we want to be different, if we want to be godly, we want to be holy, and we want to forsake sin, we really do, we need Jesus to do that work in us. God is the one who, as David prayed, can change us and create a right spirit in us. 
So those are seven A's of confession. I pray that they may have been enlightening. Some of you have never heard them before. I pray that they would be helpful to all of us. I want to encourage you this morning to put these steps into action quickly. I can bet that as I'm speaking about forgiveness over the last few weeks, it hasn't been really difficult for you to think of a person or a circumstance, a situation where forgiveness needs to be extended or where you wish forgiveness could be received. There's, there's no doubt about it because we are such broken people living in this imperfect world. But I know this too about our human nature. We know what ought to be done. And sometimes we just don't do it. The Apostle Paul confessed that in Romans chapter 7. The very things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And when it comes to this idea of forgiveness, a granting and receiving forgiveness, it falls right in that category. We know what ought to be done, but we're hesitant for some reason to do it. So I want to encourage you to understand these steps, but also to put them into practice. Seek out somebody. If you need to be forgiven, ask. If somebody has offended you, the scripture in Matthew 18 is clear. Go to that person. God wants us to keep short accounts, beloved. God wants us to clean these things. God does not want to spend our life mowing weeds. And yet that is often how our energy is spent. You don't have to live that way. I hope you don't live that way. Get it cleaned up. 1 John 1.9 says that confession is a prerequisite to God's forgiveness. And the Apostle James teaches us that confession is the pathway to healing. And Proverbs 28.13 teaches that confession brings freedom. He who conceals his sins does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them, finds mercy.